Welcome to CBO Speaks, the official podcast of the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO John Walda, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to have chief business officers reflect on their careers and offer personal examples of how they have navigated difficult situations and learn from their experiences as a CBO. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of research and tools at nakubo.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to CBO Speaks. My name is Megan Strand, your host, and I am excited to be joined today by Gerald Hector, Vice President and Finance and Administration at Ithaca College. Welcome, Gerald. Thanks a million. I'm glad to be here. So you've been with Ithaca since 2013. And prior to that, you were at Johnson C. Smith University for just about nine years. But it sounds like your career began in more of a corporate setting. So maybe you could start off today by talking a little bit about how you ended up in the field of higher education. Well, I could start out by simply saying it was merely by accident. And um Ever since graduating, I'm originally from Kingston, Jamaica, and growing up there, you have a sense of, you know, you don't look at opportunities and have them go by. Always explore and always try to be more than you can be. And I was in corporate America. I came out of Howard University on a track and field scholarship, and I went to Deloitte & Touche. And going through that process, I found myself working not only with uh, independent power plants, but a nonprofit organizations as well. And one of those nonprofit organizations that I served was the United Negro College Fund. They so happened to be my client at the time. And while doing the audit there, one day, uh, its former president, Bill Gray, and the chief financial officer, Sidney Store, came by and said to me, hey, look, we would like for you to consider joining us to help these institutions, help UNCF in general, but also find a way to give back um, to the community and try to use your skill sets for just more than just getting financial statements out and things like that. So I joined the United Negro College Fund and I spent some time there with Bill Gray and I was very, very pleased there. And he exposed me to quite a bit with um, higher education, mostly the HBCU family. And while going through that, I was able to meet a number of the presidents at the, the various meetings that we were at and when Bill Gray retired after spending about 13 years there and helping me to get my feet wet in terms of management and things of that nature at a very, very young age, and then giving me an opportunity to work on the Gates Millennium Scholars Program where I was part of a team that created the financial framework, I guess um, Dr. Dorothy Kauziansi, who remains my mentor today, she saw what I was doing there at UNCF, and when Bill Gray retired, from the UNCF, she gave me a call and said, would you come down to Johnson C. Smith University and help me do what you've just done at United Negro College Fund? And at first I told her no. And uh, Mr. Gray then said to me, you would be crazy not to go because someone is believing in you, your abilities and your skill sets that at 32, 33 years old, they're going to make you a chief financial officer. So he said, at least go down and take a look. And um, I did go look. And after spending time with Dr. Yancey and touring the campus, I was sold. And I moved from the Washington, D.C. area down to, to Johnson C. Smith. And literally, that's how I ended up in higher education. And I've loved it ever since. It has been more than a job to me. It's um, I, To some folks, I say higher education for me is almost like ministry. 
because I really do enjoy what I do because of the fact of the outcomes, seeing these young people that come in wide-eyed and know everything as a freshman, but leave as mature, well-rounded, developed individuals. And seeing them, quite honestly, shed a tear while they get that degree. That's what makes it all worth the while for me. So that's how I ended up in higher education. Well, when you first moved from a corporate setting to the higher education environment, what did you find most challenging about that that shift from corporate America to higher education? The biggest thing was, was the pace. Uh, I, I often say to people, sometimes in higher education, it's like trying to turn the Titanic with oars. Um, it does not move as quickly, and it, there are its reasons, uh, shared governance and things of that nature. But in a corporate setting, things move at a much faster pace because you are reacting to the market in very, very quick ways because you are profit and you're profit-driven, and you have to be able to service the needs of your customers or they'll, they'll go somewhere else. In a higher education setting, you are more so in a I want to say a business. A business is probably a good word for it right now. But you're in an industry. That's a better word. You're in an industry where you're shaping lives. And to shape lives, it's going to require a number of intricate pieces of information, a number of people working together, people who have disparate in different interests. They're going to have to come together and work. And in a higher education environment, then to move all of those people along, you have to be able to engage and engaging them in robust ways that will get them to see not only their point of view, but other points of views as well. And that's always something that is rather challenging because at the end of the day, you will have faculty, you'll have administration, and to meld the two together requires some measure of uh, purpose and some measure of being very, very focused in your discussions. And I, I believe that's what Sometimes it's unfairly characterized as being slow, but I would dare say it's probably now being almost uh, 13 years as a chief business officer. It is more purposeful, but it's more purposeful for a reason. And I've come to appreciate that. And as a chief business officer, that is the world in which we operate. And quite honestly, it's more fun that way because you get to engage people in in an uh, academic setting where you're using your intellect and other ways to get people to understand that, you know, here's one way of doing it, but another way, there's another way to get it done as well. So that in and of itself enlivens discussions and it enlivens debates. And we typically come up with what is the best solution for the students that we're trying to educate and launch into the world? Do you, do you think that requires a different skill set as well? You're, you're talking a lot about ministry, to use your term, and um, I, I guess different stakeholders coming into the conversation. Do you feel like that there, there's a different skill set that you needed to to tap into to manage all of that? Well, one of the things that is very, very important for anyone who wants to be a CBO or is aspiring to be one is the level of emotional intelligence has to be something that you're always mindful of. And in that, I would also say that there has to, they have, he or she or whoever is aspiring to be a chief business officer, they're going to have to learn this simple, simple character trait, patience. And patience from the standpoint that you are, you have an idea that you want to move, especially for for those of us who are chief business officers, because sometimes primarily we come out of an accounting background and everything is black and white pretty much. Every debit must have a credit and you're marching along, making sure the books are balanced and everything else is moving in, in proper order. But at the end of the day, the discussions around how we get to that point requires bringing folks along, 
explaining financial information to lay folks that necessarily don't deal with it on a regular basis. But those people have a very, very intricate role to play in the decision-making process. So it's trying to be or develop patience and also become a good listener. Uh, I think a lot of times people don't listen well. They listen with just the ear, but listening for the meta-narrative or what is not being said is a skill that's developed over time in that you can really engage someone by what they're not saying. And that's a skill that you're going to have to learn because as a CBO, you are constantly in situations where you're having to negotiate, be it contracts or you're negotiating a position with an internal um, a faculty member, the faculty council, or even your own colleagues that sit around the table with you. So those are some of the skill sets that I think that are getting more and more attention. As, as a CBO, everyone expects you to know the numbers, no accounting, no finance. But at the end of the day, a CBO on a prospective basis, and quite honestly today, has to have that emotional intelligence to work within the confines of a group and to be effective in that group and add value to the group rather than just be one that's sitting there and um, joining in on a conversation. When you think back over your career, what would you point to as, as being sort of the biggest aha moment that you can recall? Wow. Over my career? Does my career include my, 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 my youthful development? <laughs> um, at a very early age, I've always wanted to, I was fascinated by business and finance. Uh, my dad was a corporate executive for Sherwin-Williams Paint. It was stationed in Jamaica. And because of that, I also was able to move around because we also were in Trinidad. They, brought, they took him there to turn that... Um, Flit that organization around as well. But I guess my aha moment came when I was probably 13 years old. And I used that even as far back as 13 because I was growing up, I used to play, I played the sport of soccer. And um, I was on a soccer team for my high school. And after the team was very successful one year, and then the next year, myself and one other person were the only ones that were moving forward to the next year. And I found myself being the captain. And at the end of the day, the season after was so bad that we had to stop. And that has stuck with me all these years because one of the things it pointed to was just because you think that you're ready for leadership does not necessarily mean that you are ready for leadership. And the aha moment was that you have to be prepared at all times to lead you might not necessarily want to lead based on what you think, but people will hoist it upon you. And if you're well prepared and if you're also humble in what you're doing, things will work out. It's when we become impatient and we become so driven that we have to get things done our way that we will have some challenges. And that's always stuck with me throughout my entire career. So I have remained in a mode, even to this day, to be teachable. I've also, also be mindful of the fact that I don't know everything. And if I don't know everything, I should be comfortable enough to have people around me that know the things that I don't know. So at the end of the day, when a decision is made or we come to a common agreement, we can get things done. But I think for the most part, and I see it even today, some folks that I've interacted with, as, you, as they start to talk, you hear the words, I, 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 me, me, me. And that sometimes is a turnoff because it, you cannot be successful in the CBO role if you do not have the ability to play 
uh, um, on a team and be effective on that team. Well, and you're, you're leading in perfectly to my next question when, as you're referring to being flexible. So in your, in your tenure as a CBO, can you think of a moment or a situation that you think really fundamentally changed what it meant to even be a CBO? I think the last three to four years in my career has been very, very interesting because I now work at Ithaca College where we have a leader uh, in Dr. Tom Rashawn. When I was at uh, Johnson C. Smith, they had a leader in the person of Dorothy Yancey. And when I was at United Negro College Fund, obviously we had a leader in Bill Gray. But I've come to learn over the last three to four years, maybe five years, that an organization needs a leader. And if the organization does not have a leader that people can respect and people can follow and really just follow his ideas, um, prove them out, challenge in a respectful manner. But a leader is what's necessary. And more times than not, I think as a CBO, we always have to be mindful of two things, that your role is to carry out the missions and functions of the president and the board of trustees as provided, but at the same time to have the good sense to know that if you're in an environment where leadership is not necessarily being exercised, then you have options to make. And that has become one of the things that some of the mentees that I have today that I share with them on a regular and consistent basis is that you have to know who you are at all times, regardless of what the circumstances might present themselves in front of you. But if you know within your core convictions what you're about and what you're trying to get done, then you have to live with that and you have to stick by it. And too often I've seen where folks just, you know, roll over and say, well, hey, I'm just doing what I've been told. And I think for the most part, that's not a healthy thing to do. So as I would say that being your own person, knowing who you are and standing by your convictions, know what you will tolerate and what you will not tolerate are good things. One of my mentors shared with me a quote the other day that I'm going to keep on my computer screen. It says, you should always go where you're celebrated, not just tolerated. And um, I really do believe that that's very, very important for a CBO to understand in this environment that we're in, especially today where we're seeing all the challenges that um, higher education is going through at the current time. You've referred a lot to your mentors and just recently about mentees that, that you have as well. I'd like to ask you directly about that. How have you found these mentors throughout the course of your career? It sounds like some of them were sort of natural leaders of the organization, but when it comes to other mentors, have you sought people out? Have there been more structured systems in place for you to find mentors and mentees? Not necessarily. And this is where some of the emotional intelligence and growing that I think becomes very, very important. As I was going up through my career, yes, I was advancing along with individuals in public accounting, Deloitte and Touche. You're going to be among some very, very smart people. But what I always try to do is I can't really relate to an individual that is going through the same thing that I'm going through at that point in time. I had to get close to someone who had already been through it. So I was very, very purposeful in putting myself out there and meeting people and, you know, taking risks, going out, meeting, putting myself out there is the best way that I could say it. And that's what, I've, that's what I've done. I have what I call a kitchen cabinet of mentors. And what I will do is I will every now and then 
an issue might arise, and um, especially around my career, my future. I'm still a fairly young guy, as, the, as people will tell me. I like to think that way. I feel, <laughs> I feel very young because I became a CBO quite young. But um, at the end of the day, I, I still have a ways to go. So what I do is I'll tap in and I'll ask him, you know, hey, what about this? What about that? And more often than not, there are people who necessarily, some of them, going to talk to them, I'm always anxious because I know they're going to get on my case. They're going to tell me what I don't want to hear. But at the end of the day, it's the right thing for, for me to hear. So that's what I have been able to do over time. I believe getting mentors is not something that's going to be organic in nature. You're going to have to be purposeful about it. You're going to have to seek people out. You're going to have to take risks of being told no, because that's the most that someone can say to you is no. But if you are introverted folks, I would imagine, will have a challenge with that. But at the end of the day, they're going to have to get over that as well. And that becomes part of the emotional intelligence aspects of it. How do I navigate in an environment where I'm trying to really get myself to the next level and thinking about that, not just in the right now or the microwave version of it, but trying to see myself five years down the road. When I started in corporate America out of Howard University, one of my mentors told me, you should look at your career in five-year increments. And I kind of followed that. I spent five years at Deloitte and I spent five years at the United Negro College Fund. When I got to Johnson C. Smith, I broke that a little bit because I really was enjoying what I was doing in higher education. And now I'm here at Ithaca College. I think that, that five-year rule will be broken again because I'm enjoying myself immensely here in Ithaca. So at the end of the day, I will say if folks are interested in finding mentors, they have to go seek them. And do not be afraid to be rejected or be, be not necessarily be buddy-buddy with your mentor. But at the end of the day, it's a professional relationship and one that you can get something out of it. Um, my, my accounting professor, I'll never forget this, my intermediate accounting professor, Dr. Baron Harvey, who's now the dean of the business school at Howard University, he came into our intermediate one accounting class and said to us, he said, I am your professor. You are to use me to get what you want in order for you to succeed. And I've never forgotten that. And what I try to do is use that as an entree or a, a, a tenant against which I try to to live my life and my both professionally and personally and it has worked for me and I'm pretty sure it could work for others as well. What would you say is the biggest challenge facing all CBOs today as you're talking to your colleagues as you're talking to people that you mentor what what do you think people are are facing today as CBOs? I think one of the things that most CBOs are facing is that the job in and of itself is now has grown. It has grown immensely from say 10 15 years ago where you'd just be a vice president of finance and you'll be responsible for just the finances of the institution. Whereas today, a CBO or CFO is now CBO in a higher education setting. And that's driving the point that you can be a jack of all trades, but a master of none. You should never find yourself in that position. Um, a, a quote that I've always shared with others as well that I picked up from a good friend of mine is said, we always need to be mindful of not allowing the unqualified to lead the unwilling into the unnecessary. And I think that's the biggest challenge that we as CBOs face. We have to be not only the numbers guy, 
we have to be, or girl, we also have to be responsible for facilities, for information technology, in some instances, human resources, um, auxiliary services, grounds. So anything that makes the campus go and operate and function, that pretty much is going to fall under the purview of a CBO, given how some of the setups are today and depending upon the size of the institution. So what's going to happen is, or what is happening is, you have to be flexible enough and teachable enough to go and know exactly what needs to be done in these areas. And also be able to, do the, to use this little word, trust. Trust that you are hiring the right people who are going to be a part of your team to get the job done. Not only trust that you're going to hire them, but have them to own what they're doing and hold them accountable. So invariably what you'll find is that you bring professionals in and you have to keep them at a certain distance and a certain level on a professional um, basis to make sure that you have the ability to independently assess and objectively review their performance and things like that. So I think the CBOs today are finding themselves having a broader range of responsibilities, but what they are responsible for is the same, and that is to make sure the institution is financially solvent, at the same time making sure that processes, policies, and procedures are in place in order for the institution to go forward in a very smooth and efficient way. And I think the more people grasp that, the more they'll see that. And you'll see that happening today as well, Megan, in that not only are CBOs coming out of the accounting ranks, you're seeing them coming out of information technology, finance. Um, you might see some folks coming up through residence life, et cetera, et cetera. So higher education in and of itself has changed, and the role of the CBO has changed. And to be an effective CBO, you have to be able to be a part of the conversation of all of these various responsibilities that you have, but also have the, the knowledge and enough good sense to know when you have to acquire that knowledge to get the job done. Gerald, what are you doing in your role today that you never imagined you would be doing 10 years ago? Uh, I would say spending time with these students. I think um, being in corporate America, you had our head down just in balance sheets and financial statements and 10 Qs and 10 Ks and things like that. But I've always had a, a, a person's heart. I've always had a heart for people, I should say. And, uh, but I never saw myself in a situation where I would have the ability to be impactful to the lives of students. For the most part, it's indirect. But here on our campus, I meet with students all the time did the same at Johnson C. Smith. I was, uh, and I spent a lot of time when I was at Johnson C. Smith, I spent quite a bit of time with some young folks um, on the track and field team. And just to say, Megan, you know, you never know how things will turn out. Uh, one of those young ladies um, that I used to spend a little bit of time with, her sister and another gentleman, uh, just became world champion at the um, wow. meter hurdles, Daniel Williams and her sister, Shermaine and Leaford Green and you know, it, it's just a joy to have spent time around those kids. You know, they, they have a wonderful coach that we brought over from Jamaica to Johnson C. Smith and doing great things. But being able to time with them, you know, the hurts. I'm from Jamaica myself, so obviously there was a connection there from a, a, a bond. But to see these young folks graduate with move on. And, and never forget and can repeat back to you some of the conversations you've had with them when they first started. That, to me, is one of the things that I never thought that I would ever be you know, 
finances and numbers and things like that, because I have an accounting degree and I'm a CPA, you know, things will move a certain way in that regard. But just to engage with the students and play a role in their future and watch it manifest in, right in front of your eyes, it's an incredible feeling. And I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. That's fantastic. Gerald, anything else you'd like to share today that I've neglected to ask? I would just say to anyone who is aspiring to be a chief business officer, be tenacious about it. Know what you want to achieve, know what you want to accomplish, and don't let anyone tell you you can't do that. Yeah, you can do it. And, you know, it's going to take some blood, sweat, and tears. It's going to take some disappointments. It's going to take some betrayals because that happens every now and then. You're going, to be, you're going to have to rely on people who will let you down. But if you're able to respond in a way that continues you on a path forward, you know, you'll make it. And um, this job, sometimes people will say it's a thankless job. I sometimes disagree with that comment because at the end of the day, if you want to be a chief business officer, if you have it in your mind that you want to impact the lives of young people going forward, be it directly or indirectly, you can get it done. And it is a lot of hard work. I will not kid anyone. It's a lot of long hours. It's not a nine to five. It's almost a 24-7 job because especially if you have campus security reporting to you, it is a 24-7 job. But if you're able to embrace the workload, have fun while doing it, I think you will be successful. I don't think. I know you'll be successful. And that's what, that's, you know, that's what I'd like to share with, with anyone who will listen. And quite honestly, that's what I share with a lot of my mentees today. Thank you so much, Gerald, for your time today and for sharing your fantastic story with all of us. You can find out more about Gerald as well as today's episode by visiting the distance learning section of nakubo.org. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks in iTunes so you don't miss an episode. And on behalf of Gerald and myself, we'd like to thank you so much for joining us for this episode of CBO Speaks. CBO Speaks.